I am pumped to be here. So pumped. Uh, Phil has been a really, really good friend of mine for the last several years. Uh, we met a couple of years ago. I have heard from him about all that God has done and is doing in this church, but I've never been able to see you and never been able to be with you. And so I'm really, really excited to be with you this morning, to worship with you, and to open up God's word together. Before we do that, let's stop and ask him to make this time, as we dig into his word, fruitful in our hearts and lives. Father, we thank you for a gospel that is worth getting up early and singing about. We thank you for a gospel that is worth our life. We thank you for a love shown to us in Christ that is better than life itself so that were we to be in a dry and weary land where there is no water, our soul would not thirst for that water but for you. And in the soul-satisfying sweetness that is ours in Christ Jesus. God, help us to know in our deepest of hearts the joy of what it is to be justified in your sight on the basis of Jesus. And may it guide the way that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through the first part of verse 6 together this morning. And I do, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat somewhere around you. And if you're going to use that Bible, then Isaiah 9 is on page 573. I want you to have it open in front of you as we go through this text together this morning. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace through believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul told the Roman church that when we place our hope in dependent trust upon God, what he has said to us, what he has done, what he has accomplished, when we place our hope and dependent trust on that, then God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes into our hearts, overflows and fills it with all joy and all peace and all hope. God means that our faith, that believing, trusting, building our lives upon certain things would be the way that he fills us with overflowing joy and hope and peace. Biblical faith is not simply blind acceptance of things we can't prove. Biblical faith is hearing God speaking to us in his word and saying, yes, I believe that. God declared it and I believe it. And when we believe like that, God by his Holy Spirit comes in and fills our hearts and our lives with joy. So if you're searching for joy in your life, one of the ways that you can do that is to fill your heart and to fill your mind with true things about God, with biblical facts, with doctrine true things about God and who he is and what he has done in Christ through the gospel and who we are in light of what he has done. When we believe those things and steady our heart on those things, it opens the door for God to fill us with joy and peace and hope. 
So what I want us to do this morning is, in our time together is I want us to examine one of these biblical truths, specifically the doctrine of justification, and see that when we rest ourselves on this doctrine of justification, it is a means of God-given peace and joy and hope. I want to convince you this morning that grasping and loving and trusting in the doctrine of justification is an ever-flowing, indomitable source of lasting joy. So if you're discouraged this morning, or if you're weary, or if you're longing for a peace and a hope and cannot find it, or if you want an undying, unfading, fixed source of joy deep down in the foundations of your heart, then I want you to know that fully knowing and embracing and relying upon the truth of the doctrine of justification can send your soul soaring there. So let's look together at this text this morning, Isaiah 9, starting in verse 3 and going through the first part of verse 6. This is what God says to us. You, meaning God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. So here's what I want us to do together this morning. I want us to number one look at what is the doctrine of justification? What do we mean when we say the doctrine of justification? How does this text teach it? And why then is it a source of overflowing joy? So what is the doctrine of justification? How do we see it in this particular text? And why does it become a source of ever-flowing joy? So first, what, what is the doctrine of justification? You could have a, a longer definition of it, but let's, let's go with this. I think this is a good one. Justification is when God declares us to be perfectly righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done when we trust him. God looks at us and he says, you are perfectly righteous, not because of what you've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done when you put your trust in him. So let's dig into that for just a few minutes. Unpack that definition. God declares us to be righteous. That's the first part of it. That means that when we say God declares us to be righteous, it means that God declares that as far as our standing with him goes, as far as our relationship with him, he declares that we have always perfectly obeyed him and there is nothing in us, no cause in us to condemn us for anything. It means both that in God's eyes, he sees us as never having done anything wrong and always having always done what is right with pure and right motives. 
When God declares us righteous, it means he declares us with respect to, his, to our position before him to be sinless, without fault, without condemnation. Now right there you think, well, how can that be true of anybody? How can God look at anyone and say, when I look at you and I consider our relationship, I see that you have never sinned and only done what is right. Who has never sinned and who has always done what is right and who always does right things with the right motives? I know that I certainly am not like that. Not even really for one particular day or an hour, much less a whole lifetime when you look at the whole course of my life. But justification declares that God looks at our whole life and says, this person has never disobeyed, but only perfectly obeyed all the time. How can God say that about us? If he looks at you or he looks at me and he says that about us and it's just based on who we are in ourselves, then God is either blind or he's ignorant or he's a liar. How can the God who sees and knows everything and sees not just the outward actions but also the inward dispositions of our heart, how can he look at anyone and say, perfectly righteous? Well, it certainly cannot be on the basis of who we are and what we've done, it must be on the basis of something outside of ourselves, and that's where we get to the second part of the definition. God declares us righteous because of what Jesus has done. God declares us righteous not because of who we are, not because we are righteous, but he declares us righteous on the basis of Jesus. Justification is grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. So we just said that if God is going to declare us righteous, then two things have to happen. He has to declare that all of the sins that we've done haven't been done, and we've only ever perfectly obeyed. He's got to, in justification, take away our sins, and also, on top of that, add to us a perfect righteousness. It's like money in a bank account. If you were to look at go online or you know, back in the old days when I first had my bank account, I had the register. You remember that where you would write things in and what you spent and, and when you got deposits. It's, when you look at that register, you see minus signs, things taken out of your account, debits. And then hopefully there's also credits <laughs> that are put into your account that can cover those debits. So you have things taken out and also things added in. And justification states that Jesus takes away those debits takes away the subtractions and only adds in his additions. On the basis of Jesus, those debits are removed, which is what we commonly refer to as forgiveness. If we're going to be declared righteous, then these sins that we've committed, both in thought and in heart and in action and in word, they have to be taken away. They have to be removed. And the scripture teaches us that that's what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. Justification, in God's word, states that Jesus died on the cross as a punishment for the sins that we have committed. All of our sins, 
from beginning to end, the whole lot of them are laid upon Jesus as he's on the cross and God pours out his full wrath and the full punishment that those sins deserved onto Jesus. It's like Peter writes, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Through Jesus and his death on the cross, our sins are no longer charged to our account. They're charged to Jesus' account. He becomes sin for us. He experiences God's wrath against those sins. And because now Jesus has suffered the full weight and the full penalty of those sins, they are not, hold, they are not held against our account any longer. Jesus' death on the cross removes all the debits of sin that our actions have done. Because of Jesus, there are, in a sense, no withdrawals from our account. All the debits have been removed. But more than just taking away the debits, he has also added into our account his credits. He has given us his perfect record of obedience. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says that he wants to gain Christ... And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So what Paul is saying here is that he wants to be in Christ. He wants to be united to Christ, united with him. And the reason why he wants that is because he realizes that his own righteousness is not enough to cut it. Like Isaiah says, our righteousness, our best deeds, our best efforts are like filthy rags before God. We need a righteousness better than our own. And by faith in Christ, we become united to him and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So we said in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And then the second part of that verse is that so that in him we might become we might be the very righteousness that God requires. Through faith in Jesus, we become so united to Christ, we become in Christ, that God, when he looks at us, sees us as being in Christ, sees us as Christ. Paul says in Galatians chapter three that we have all been clothed with Christ. Whenever I studied that text, I, I, I got the, the image in my mind of being clothed with Christ, like going to a Halloween costume party and everybody's dressed like Jesus. You know? That's what church is like. Everyone is clothed and dressed in the righteousness of Jesus so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us with our debits and our insufficient righteousness. He sees the perfect obedience and righteousness of his son. It's like if you were to go into math class and you gave your exam to Albert Einstein because the teacher saw you as the same person. His credits and his righteousness become ours. Justification means that we find our identity before God, not in who we are, but in who Christ is. It means that in union with him, he takes our sin and we take his righteousness. Charles Hodge puts it this way. In virtue of this union, we are 
what he is. That blows my mind. You know how Paul in Romans 8 says that we are co-heirs with Christ? How does that work? Well, it's because of justification. In him, in virtue of this union, we are what he is. We are the children of God in him. What he did, we did. His righteousness is our righteousness. His life is our life. His exaltation is our exaltation. That's what the doctrine of justification is. God treats us as though we were righteous. He declares us to be righteous, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of his son. So now, knowing what that is, how do we see it in this particular text? How do we see justification in Isaiah 9, 3 through the first part of 6? So we look at these verses, we see that Isaiah is he's speaking to God, but he's declaring it to God's people. And he's talking about how God has, is going to give his people a cause to rejoice. We see joy spoken throughout the text. Verse three, you have increased its joy. Again, in verse three, they're gonna rejoice before you with the joy at the harvest. So what's at the, what's at the base of this joy? Where's this joy coming from? And as we look at the text, we see that there are three causes of the joy. Three causes of the joy. First cause is they will be joyful because God will multiply the descendants. So look at the first part of verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. So this first spring of joy is the multiplication of the nation. They're gonna have lots of descendants. Means that God is going to multiply children. Wombs are going to be blessed. Offspring will increase. Second cause for joy that we see is joy that comes from a bountiful harvest. So look at the second part of verse 3. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So you think about in an agricultural society how joyful the harvest was and how dependent they were upon the harvest. You spend months and months tilling the field and sowing it and then cultivating the plant and hopes that the harvest will be good and that the community will be supported. The harvest was so looked forward to that the Israelites always had a week-long party whenever the harvest came. In fact, they had two parties. They had a party when they had the very first part of the harvest come in and the very last part of the harvest came in. So the harvest time was bookended by parties, week-long parties. So the harvest was was associated with joy. Whenever the, the harvest was bountiful, then they rejoiced. God says here that their joy is gonna be like a week-long party that they have when they celebrate a fruitful harvest. So multiplied crops, fruitful harvest is gonna be a second source of joy. The third source of joy that we see here is the joy that stems from when they have total victory over their enemies. This is the thing to which Isaiah devotes most of his words here and most of the detail. He says here in verse three that they are going to rejoice as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So you think about when you divide the spoil, that happens when you lick your opponent so bad that they're either all dead or they've all run away and their stuff is just there for you to come and take. So you only divide the spoil when you have completely dominated and crushed your enemy. 
He talks about how they're going, he, God is going to snap the yoke of burdens, snap the staff of the shoulder, snap the rod of the oppressor, like it was broken as on the day of Midian. This is a reference back to Judges 6 through 7 when God used a tiny army of only 300 men to whip and chase down the entire army of Midian. So Midian had been oppressing Israel. They would let Israel do all the hard work of preparing the harvest and then they would come in and take everything away. And then in Judges 6 through 7, we read about how God gave Israel victory over Midian and restored to them the joy. Then he talks about how all of the clothing and the instruments of warfare are going to be thrown into the fire. It says every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood is going to be fuel for the fire. So these boots of the army that's marching toward them to conquer them, the, 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 the war clothing they wore, they're going to be so whipped, so licked, such complete victory that these things that were marching against them are not going to have anybody in them and they're just going to be fuel for the fire. So all this imagery in verses 4 through 5 points to the same thing. Israel is going to have total victory over its enemies. And that's the kind of joy that they're going to have. So those three things. God is going to give them joy. And what's going to be the source and the base of this joy? Well, multiplied descendants, fruitful, bountiful harvest, complete victory over their enemies. Now to get the full weight of what he's saying there. We've got to back up a little bit and look at the overall context of the relationship of, between God and his people. Israel and God, they, had, they were in a covenant together. God gave Israel a law that was summarized by the Ten Commandments and he said, look, if you live by these laws then I'm going to give you blessings. Let's hear from Deuteronomy 28 how this was articulated. It says, if... You fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today. Then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And now he's going to tell them the blessings that will come. Blessing number one the fruit of your womb will be blessed. In other words, lots of healthy descendants. Blessing number two. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. In other words, you're going to have a bountiful harvest. The basket will be full and you'll have plenty of harvest to knead your bread. Blessing number three. Can you guess what it is? The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but will flee from you in seven. In other words, you're going to have complete victory over your enemies. So, this is what the relationship between God and his people said. If you, Israel, are completely obedient, if you fully obey, I'm going to give you fruitful wombs, I'm going to give you fruitful harvest, and I'm going to give you complete victory over your enemies. So as you look here at Isaiah 9, this is exactly what God promises. Look, I'm going to give you joy, just like fruitful descendants, a fruitful harvest, and complete victory over your enemies. But if we think about the relationship between God and his people, God said that these blessings are only going to come if you fully obey the Lord. And if you obey all his commandments. 
Now, if you've read the first part of the book of Isaiah, you know these people don't follow the Lord. They don't fully follow the Lord. They don't even partially follow the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, you've become just like Sodom. You've become just like Gomorrah. You are completely wicked in all of your ways, from the heart to your deeds to your thoughts. You aren't following me. Yes, you come in, you give me lip service, and you do some religious stuff, but you don't follow me. How then can God look at these people, these same Israelites that he just said, you're just like Sodom. You're just like Gomorrah. How can he look at them and say, look, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you joy just like as if you had fully obeyed me. All the blessings that were supposed to come from full obedience, I'm going to give to you the disobedient. How can God say that? On what basis can he make that promise? Look at verse 6. Four. I know it's cliche, but whenever you see a therefore or a for, you need to find out what it's there for. Verse 6, he's giving us the reason why all of these blessings in verses 3 through 5 are going to come to these disobedient people. How can God give these blessings of of obedience to these disobedient people for to us a child is born? To us, a son is given. God is promising here that he's going to treat disobedient Israel as if they had been obedient on the basis of the son that he's going to give. God is going to declare the unrighteous righteous on the basis of his son. It's not because of anything that they had done or anything about them. It's because this child is coming. It's because this son is being sent to them as a gift. And God is going to treat these disobedient as if they had been perfectly obedient because of his son, Jesus. That's the doctrine of justification. Blessings flowing to the disobedient because of union with the one who had been obedient. He is going to unite us to this son, to this Christ, and all that is his, as Hodge said, will be ours. His obedience, our obedience. His life, our life. His glory, our glory. Before I got married to my wife, Beth, I was a very irresponsible person, very irresponsible student. I almost flunked out of college. It took me six years to get an undergraduate degree from the University of Kentucky, which being up here in Chicago is not that big, great of a university. You know, you're surrounded by Northwestern and the University of Chicago. And it took me six years because I was a very irresponsible person, which meant I had all these scholarships when I went in, almost flunked out of college because I was playing video games all day long. Took me two extra years, so I lost all my scholarships and was saddled with all of this student loan debt. On top of that, I owed money on my car. Uh, I, I was just saddled with a ton of debt. I didn't own a single thing in this world. Nothing was mine. Everything was lent to me, and I owed money on it. Beth, on the other hand, was a very responsible student. Kept her 
scholarship, came from a family that had hard work and many blessings. She had earned a full tuition scholarship. She kept it. Her father had worked hard to start a business, became successful. He was able to bless Beth. She had a fully paid, fully paid off car. She had money in the bank and she owned land. So when we came together in this marriage, I had all this debt. I, I didn't own anything. I only owed. And here came Beth with land and money and all this stuff. And you know what happened when we got married? Guess who had land? <laughs> and guess who had a car? And guess who had money to overflow to fill all of my debts and pay those things off? Me. Because of this union and this covenant I entered into with Beth, now all of her blessings became mine. I came with nothing but debt. She came with nothing but blessings, and her blessings overflowed and covered mine. That's what it's like when we become united with Christ. All that he is and all the blessings that overflow and abound in him become ours. All of our debts are canceled, and we have nothing but blessings. Everything that is his is ours, and all that he owns becomes ours. Doctrine of justification declares that we are right, sinless, in the eyes of a holy God because of what Jesus has done. So lastly, let's think about why then does this doctrine and knowing this doctrine and believing this doctrine and trusting this doctrine in our deepest of hearts, why does this lead to peace and hope and joy? Let me offer you two things. Number one, trusting the doctrine of justification guards you from caring too much about what other people think. Resting in the doctrine of justification guards you from caring too much about what other people think. Is that you? Do you care too much about what other people think about you? Let me ask you a couple of diagnostic questions. Do you ever go to a party or you meet new people and on the ride home you're worrying about how you sounded? And how you came off. Or maybe it's when you meet somebody that you really respect or look up to. And after you're done with that conversation, oh, I said this, does he think I'm like this? You constantly worry about how other people perceive you after you interact with him. Or let me ask you this. Does every conversation you're in ultimately turn into talking about you? Do you find ways to turn and bring every conversation back to you so that you can get to talking about the things that you've done, the accomplishments that you've made? Or let me ask this question. Do you hide your sin? Do you conceal and cover over sin in your life and you forsake the balm of confession and shining light on all the dark areas of your life because you're too worried about what other people are going to think about you if they knew what you were really like and what you really thought and what you really did when no one else was around. Let me ask you this. Don't you find it so tiring 
caring so much about what other people think? Isn't it so tiring constantly worrying about how you come off to other people? Isn't it tiring to be in constant fear of someone finding out and discovering your secret sin? Isn't it tiring to constantly try to scrape and moan to have others think of you a certain way, to hide certain parts of yourself, stress over things in your life that aren't perfect? Well, when you glory in God... And when you fix your hope and your understanding of yourself in his justifying work, you can let go of the act. I mean, think about this. The holy and righteous God who is the creator of the universe, the God of every man who sees into the very depths of your heart, he has looked at you and on the basis of his son has said, righteous, accepted, adopted, beloved son, treasured daughter. I want you with me forever. God has said that about you. Why do you care about what someone else thinks? God sees the depth of your sin and he has said, justified. Why do you care what your friend or your roommate thinks or your, your spouse thinks? If you're declared righteous by God and you understand what that means, who God is, and he sees me as righteous on the basis of his son, why do we spend so much time hiding ourselves and putting ourselves up so that other people will think well of us? God has already declared you righteous. Resting in the doctrine of justification guards us from caring too much about what other people think. The second thing I want to encourage you with is that Trusting and loving and treasuring the doctrine of justification guards you from caring too much about what you think about yourself. Resting in the doctrine of justification guards us from caring too much about what we think about ourselves. Some of you all were here for the breakfast this morning and you heard me talk about some of the new Christians that are, have come to faith in the life of our church. And a couple of these young men, as I disciple them and work with them and, and try to, to get underneath them and push them up toward Jesus, the number one issue I deal with in working with these new brothers is teaching them to deal with feelings of guilt. Either over things that they did in their life before they became Christians or current failings, current sins in their life. They look at who they were or they look at the fact that they're not fully sanctified yet and there's still sin in their life and they feel guilty. And they feel about themselves that they're unworthy. They know that what they have done is dirty and they think that because it is so dirty that it's unforgivable. And they are so caught up in what they think about their sin that they're not looking up to hear what God has declared about them in their sin. We read it earlier in the, the service this morning, Romans 5.1. Therefore, this is what God says. When we feel guilty and we're saddled with what Paul says in 2 
Corinthians 7, worldly sorrow that only leads to regret and condemnation. This is what God says about us if our confidence is in Jesus. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous in God's sight, through faith we have peace with God. Not can have, not, well, if you can fix these things here and get back on the right path, then we have it. Because God is not dealing with you on the basis of who you are and what you've done, but on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done. We have peace. It is a finished thing. It is a declaration that has already been said once and for all. If you trust in Christ, then you are, in God's sight, righteous. And God no longer deals with you on the basis of who you are, but on the basis of who you are in Christ. Therefore, he can say later in Romans 8, if we have this peace with God, if we are in Christ and God is dealing with us not on the basis of who we are, but who we are in Christ, then who will bring, even yourself, any charge against you? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Sometimes when you work with people who are dealing with feelings of guilt, you'll hear someone talk about the phrase, well, you just have to learn to forgive yourself. And when I hear that, I think, who cares if you've forgiven yourself? I mean, your standard of judging yourself doesn't matter. You need to, if you are a Christian, you don't need to learn to forgive yourself. You need to learn to believe what God has already said about you. Some people say, well, I know God has forgiven me, but I just, I've got to learn to forgive myself. It's like, what are you talking about, man? God has forgiven you. Do you have a higher standard than God himself? You don't need to learn to forgive yourself. You need to learn to shut up, be quiet, listen to God. Listen to what he says about you. You are righteous. I know what you've done, but I see you in Christ. You are righteous in him. No charge can be brought. God has declared us righteous, and that is what you are. Because you are in Jesus. If that is who we are in Jesus, and we know that God always seals sees us. We always have bold access and bold confidence to come to him and ask for help. We can enter into that throne room with boldness and confidence knowing that he wants to give us help because the relationship is still good. Since that's true, we can have, even when we stumble, as we look to the gospel, we can have undisturbed peace and acceptance and an assurance of love and adoption and grace and mercy from God. Even though we know we deserve punishment, we have that peace. Because we are justified. The doctrine of justification is a means of great joy because it doesn't matter what other people think about us and it doesn't matter what we think about us. It matters what God has said and declared about us. So friends, this morning I want you to know that no matter what happens to you in your life, if your faith is in Christ, and you are justified. You have unflinching certainty of hope. 
acceptance. The future lies before you of eternal blessing and glory because of Christ. So the song says, Behold him there, the risen lamb. He is my perfect, spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Amen. May we know it to be true and may we find joy in it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth and the certainty and the unhindered, unfettered, undisturbed joy we can have by knowing who we are in Christ. God, we thank you that we don't presume to say that we are right in your eyes because we think that we are pretty good people, but we can know it. And that it has nothing to do with us but about what you have done for us in Christ. God, help us, whether in our guilt or in our secrecy, in our constant pining to be seen a certain way by certain people, God, help us to look to the doctrine of justification and know who we are in Christ and find our hope in life and joy in that. God, we pray that you would fill us with all joys and peace, all joy and peace through believing in what you have said about us in Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.